0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2 this morning, Acts chapter 2 specifically verses 42 through 47, Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. A few months ago, Daniel and I were in Charleston. I was speaking for a friend's uh, company's retreat there. We had two days that we were there. And one night, Daniel and I had the privilege to go to a really beautiful restaurant that for 105 years was a church. So you walk into this, this uh, old renovated church, it was 105 years old, 60 foot vaulted ceilings. You've got original stained glass that are encircling the space there. Beautiful setting. As we sat down, the waiter came to our table And a part of taking sort of our drink orders, he gives us sort of the history of the space. And in telling us uh, the space and how it's been used for 105 years, he talked about about 10 years before when the church ceased to be there, there were some private developers that bought the space and they had a ceremony and the ceremony was to deconsecrate the space which was a very interesting phrase to me. It was a phrase that I was not familiar with. I, what, what? And so I was curious. And so I asked our waiter, what, what happens at a service to deconsecrate a church? And he said, I don't know. I'm just getting your orders here. Do you want water or not? <laughs> Why do I have to always wait on the Baptist preachers? That's what he was thinking. In this moment, but it was just a very curious phrase here, service to deconsecrate the space. And so we ate, it was a wonderful meal, it was beautiful space, all of that. But it did lead me once again to think through what we often have to remind ourselves of is the relationship of the church to any physical space. And you know this, but it's just a reminder that the church is much more than a locale. The church is much more than walls and brick and mortar. You know this, but we need to be reminded. But then when we ask ourselves, well, what more is it? Then we have words that come to our minds, phrases. We might say these differently. We might use different words, but if I were just to pin you down and say, hey, how would you describe what a church is? You would come up with sort of these words, It's a gathering, it's an assembly of believers. You're going to add that. These Christians that are gathering, they're assembling together. They're devoted to, what what are they devoted to? They're devoted, well, of course you're going to say God, but they're devoted to some other things, right? There's some other practices that constitute what the church looks like in the expression of the church here. And so as we're fishing for these words here of an assembly, a gathering of believers that are devoted to God and devoted to, well, this early cameo in Acts chapter 2 that you've turned to this morning gives us a portrait of what a healthy church is devoted to. Hear the word of the Lord as we think together this morning around this very theme. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions verse 45 and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord did what? Added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This little cameo of what the early church was devoted to, it comes on the heels of the first evangelistic sermon that Peter gives us. Peter's sermon is to explain what has occurred when the Spirit of God descends upon those early followers in Acts chapter two, and they begin to speak in languages that all of those uh, Jewish people who are living in the diaspora, the Greco-Roman world that come back for the feast of Pentecost are able to hear, they're able, able to hear the communication in their own language. And so Peter, a few weeks earlier, who had betrayed Jesus, now stands up as going to be the first proclaimer of Jesus in this moment post the ascension of Jesus. And he preaches an evangelistic sermon that is rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. He goes back to the prophet Joel. He connects it to the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. So he says all of this that's in our Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, it pointed to Jesus. And it's in this moment that you got 3,000 people that hear this message, they repent of their sins and they're baptized and they're added to the roster. They're added to the membership of this first church of Jerusalem here. Of course, they didn't have roster roles. Of course, they didn't have memberships. But you get where I am going here. What constitutes that church in Jerusalem is this evangelistic harvest of 3,000 plus. There's 120 early followers of Jesus that come together and they devote themselves to things like, well, what a healthy church devotes itself to. A healthy church is devoted to the Word of God. Do you see that in Verse 42 you see the lead-off hitter of the description of what these early followers of Christ are committed to is the apostles' teaching. Now you say, well, David, what's the apostles' teaching? How does that distinguish itself from the Hebrew Bible, what we have in the New Testament, what we open to? Is that different? Is it the same? Well, of course, when Peter stood up, 2,000 years ago, he didn't say, now all of God's people, take your Bibles out of the pew rack in front of you and turn with me to the gospel of John. There wasn't a gospel of John. But you know what was around? John was around. You know what was around? The early followers of Jesus were around. So a part of the apostles' teaching are those who've walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, observed Jesus, saying, you remember when? You remember when Jesus said? You remember when Jesus did? And, and they're connecting these dots. So when we have our New Testament, we got four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that constitute for us these early stories and teachings that were gathered and coalesced under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and passed down. And then form for us the Gospels. Well, we don't just have the Gospels for us as the apostles teaching. We have the Hebrew scripture. We actually have more than Peter has, Right. What we have inspired by God, the revelation of God contained from Genesis to Revelation, we have the Bible. And so what they devote themselves to is the apostles' teaching. It really just gives a foretaste of what we as Christians 2,000 years later with the riches of Genesis through Revelation, the riches of the Bible are able to devote ourselves to. And so it was emblematic of what they devoted themselves to. So we understand that for our church to flourish, we have to have a consistent and steady diet of the word of God. These are the nutrients. These are are the macros that are essential for your growth. the, The spiritual metabolism that you need to build, the spiritual muscles that you need to build. You know how they're built? They're built through a devotion to, a commitment to the word of God. It's why we gather in worship and we sing Scripture-saturated songs. It's why we gather in worship and we, we open up the Word of God to do what? To encourage us, yes, but to equip us for every good work in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. It's one of the reasons that I have to hear and heed this Word in verse 42 as a reminder, as your shepherd that I am committed and am called to be committed to a particular diet that I am to feed you as a congregation and what I am to feast on myself. So I don't have the option to feed you a diet of spiritual cotton candy. Now, there, are a lot, there are a lot of different flavors of spiritual cotton candy. There, there are a lot of alternatives that that pass. For a healthy diet here, and they might go down with great flavor, but they will never fill you up. And if I could stand before you and week after week just sort of give you my political hot takes, it is spiritual cotton candy. If I stood up before you and I said, "Well, this last week I read this book and I got four points from this book here, and it's and it's helpful, and four points that are going to give you an anxious free, worry free." wonderful parenting, wonderful marriage, or I watched this movie this last week and that movie is what we tether ourselves to, or that that television show is what we tether ourselves to. Of course, we allude to these things. Of course, we illustrate with these things. Of course, we can learn truth in these things, but these are not, these are not what we tether ourselves to. It's one of the reasons that we repeat what we emphasize here in this church. There's certain things that it's not that we don't know other English words to use in our worship, but one of the refrains that we have in the welcome, one of the refrains that you have and you receive every time I stand up before you is take your copy of God's word and turn with me to. This book, this chapter, these verses, it is, it is more than symbolic. It is saying that what we're going to do in these next 30 minutes are not just my thoughts here because who cares about my thoughts? I mean, really, dude, you are way too busy. To come in here and me waste your time with something other than what really lasts and what really is true and what really endures here. Now, this this goes against our culture. It bristles against what we feel inside of the church. It's not just outside the church, inside the church. We're using a word like authority. And that word is a word that we just don't have. We don't have a real appetite for. And we bristle against authority. You remember, there was an old Bob Dylan song, and Dylan goes through this gospel phase. He becomes a Christian. He's got three albums. And on one of his albums, he's got this song, you've got to serve somebody. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be the king of France, but you've got to serve somebody. I think the temptation for us is to think that we can live an authority-less life, that we can, we can exempt ourselves from an authority. But we all, even if we bristle against the word of God here, we, we are all going to serve someone and we just choose, are we going to sit under and submit ourselves to our feelings, our perspective, our desire, the latest fad, the latest guru who is selling, get rich, get fit, get younger. Or do we sit under and submit ourselves to the sovereign creator of the universe who has spoken through his spirit and a word that continues to speak to us today it's not a question just for our church it is a question for me you each of us individually uh, this afternoon at two o'clock some of you are going to turn on the television you're going to watch Patrick Mahomes for the Kansas City Chiefs play the Baltimore Ravens star quarterback Lamar Jackson And these positions are being played at really the highest level in the history of football here. I mean, these guys, what they do on the field, these are truly, truly unprecedented players that we're watching play these positions in ways that have never been played. Now, as good as Mahomes is and as good as Jackson is, Uh, for for the Ravens and the Chiefs here, you do understand that all that they bring to the field this afternoon is contingent upon, was contingent upon their submission to and sitting under someone else who has drawn up the playbook. You know what the the coaches are not asking Mahomes and, and, and Lamar Jackson to do is, hey, in the off season, I want you to come back with the entire offensive scheme. No, that, that's the role of the coach. And even this afternoon, and again, there are a lot of nuances to this, and some of you are coaches in this room, and you can pick apart this analogy. Don't pick it apart too much, okay? Okay. But you have an offensive coordinator that could call the plays from the sidelines, but sometimes the offensive coordinator goes up in the press box. And even if the OC is calling the plays from the sideline, there's going to be one of the coaching assistants that is high above in the press box. What? To be able to see the entire field. Because as great as Lamar Jackson is and as great as Patrick Mahomes is as a quarterback, these two men can't see everything. So they're dependent upon a coach who is devising a scheme, and they're dependent upon coach's input. They're dependent upon a coach that's calling in the place. They're dependent upon the co- coach that has drawn up the place. And you know this, what is going to separate, what's going to separate the, the good from the best are the ability to be able to take those plays and to sit under them, submit, and then to play at the highest level on the field. Now, some of us in this room, what we do is we take the playbook of God's Word, and we get to the line of scrimmage of your home and your family and your work, and we see what is before us, and we call an audible, And we say, we say to God, you know, if you could, well, hey, if you saw what I see right here, you'd realize that we got to change the play. And so the question before us as a church, as we seek above our baptistry to be found faithful as God's people, will we sit under and submit to the word of God, even when it's not fashionable? And even when it pushes us in a way that we lose what we feel to be the greatest asset, which is cultural acceptability and a cultural applause will we sit under and submit to the word of God before us when we see this early church's cameo a healthy church is devoted to the word of God but that's not only what they're devoted to a healthy church is devoted to the worship of God again look with me in verse 42 verse 46 and verse 47 they're devoted to the apostles teaching but to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer verse 46 every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Well, There's a lot there. You know what's not there? It's not first church Jerusalem's order of service. That's not what this is. Uh, We we don't have Mary singing a solo here. We don't have Peter's sermon title here. We we don't have everything that they always did, but we have things that they're devoted to that are right here. They are devoted to assembling together, to gathering together. They do that where in the temple courts, most likely the courtyard of the Gentiles. On the Feast of Pentecost, you would have sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. It could hold 200,000 people that could fill that place. But Really, it's the only place in Jerusalem where you could have over 3,000 people gathering together. So they're worshiping there, but also they're worshiping informally in homes. So you have larger formal gatherings where they're worshiping together corporately, You have informal gatherings where they're worshiping together, devoting themselves in homes here. What are they doing? They're praising God, verse 47. This certainly entails some form of singing. Again, traditional, contemporary. We don't have that before us here. We don't have an order of worship, nor do we have a list of songs, but we can be certain they're singing the Psalter that they're taking the, the Hebrew scriptures, 150 uh, prayers and songs embedded right there in their own Bible, the things that they've been singing in temple worship. And they're, they're utilizing those as, as, as their own soundtrack. And they're probably adding to that words. And you say, well, David, where, where do you see that? Well, when you have in the New Testament, you've got these certain parts of the New Testament where, where the Apostle Paul is drawing upon poetic imagery most often, it could be that he's drawing upon early Christian songs. The greatest example of that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, where he tells the church at Philippi, have this mind that is in Christ. What was Christ like? Well, he did not consider it equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He emptied himself and became a man, not just a man, but a servant and not just a servant, but he died. Not that he just died. It's just this downward descent here. And when you look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, you see that there is something that's rhythmic about this. There, this is most likely a, a song. So you have new songs that they're singing. Most likely you've got the psalter that they're singing here. But that's not just what they're doing. They're praising God, but they're breaking bread. Verse 42, verse 46. Of course, that means they're eating together. I mean, they, they have fellowship over a shared meal together. You walk through the Gospels, you see Jesus so often eating with people. One of the criticisms of Jesus is that he ate with sinners. And so you have the early church following in the footsteps of Jesus, sharing meals with one another. But more than just breaking bread, most uh, Bible interpreters would look at this and say, this, this, this probably means more than just having a meal together. In early church history, you would have these meals that were called agape feast. That would be a meal that would culminate in communion, and so they would share a meal together, and then they would share. They would share the cup. They would share the bread as they did what Jesus taught them to do when he was alive to remember me, remember me through the cup and through bread, and they worship finally through prayer. Do you see this in verse forty-two here? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's not a surprise because they've walked with Jesus. They've they've got three years of following Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus did consistently is he would go off by himself and he would commune with the father. That he he would teach them how to pray. And so you're walking through the acts of the apostles and you've got consistently the, the, the early apostles, the early church, they're just bathing everything in prayer. They pray before they eat. They pray when they gather together for corporate worship. They pray when they're persecuted and opposed. They pray when they're walking the streets and they come through someone who is distressed and ailing with disease and demonically oppressed and they're praying to God. And so we have this through line of prayer that just reminds us that prayer is the spiritual oxygen of the church. It's not just my opinion on that, a great German reformer and preacher, scholar, German Uh, Martin Luther would say that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. This is our spiritual oxygen. Some of you know the 19th century Baptist preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, really one of the first celebrity preachers, megachurch pastors. I mean, uh, London Metropolitan Tabernacle, it held over 5,000 people. And some of you have been there and you've worshiped in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And Spurgeon was this famous orator, famous preacher, but he was one whose ministry wasn't just Sunday morning ministry. That church started hundreds of ministries to the poor, to those who were going through educational challenges that 19th century, uh, London Industrial Revolution, all of that. Spurgeon was on the front end of ministering holistically to his community. And so you would have people that would come from Great Britain, no doubt, that would worship with them on Sunday, but also from the U.S., and oftentimes they would catch Spurgeon before the service, and Spurgeon, as as, his biographies would say, would give them a tour of the sanctuary and the tour of the facilities. And he would often ask, do you want to see where the heartbeat of these ministries are, the heartbeat of this church is? And of course they wanted to, thinking maybe Spurgeon would take them back to his personal office, but he wouldn't. Or maybe Spurgeon would take them to to some vantage point and some place in the sanctuary, but he wouldn't do that. You know where he would take them? He would take them to the boiler room, downstairs in the basement. And he would take them there, and especially on Sunday morning, he would show them hundreds of members of the church that were gathered on their knees in prayer. he would say, this is the heartbeat of all that God is doing in our worship services. This is the heartbeat of all that God is doing in these ministries. It is not found in my eloquence, not found in my sermonic gifts. It is found in the prayers of these women and these men. And this is true not just in the 19th century England. It's not just true 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. My friends, it is just as true today. We're devoted to the worship of God, And that devotion is praising God through song. That devotion is communion, the breaking of bread. That devotion is a commitment to prayer, but it's not only a devotion to the worship of God and the word of God that we see here. We also see that these early Christians were not insular, inward turning, but their worship and their commitment to the word, it led them to be outward focused. Do you see that a healthy church is devoted to the care of one another? Again, in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word can become a real lazy sort of Christian cliche sort of word, fellowship, especially for those of you that have been a part of a a Christian church for years. You hear that word and what, what is synonymous with that word? Food is synonymous with that word. Fellowship, meals, It's the potluck Sunday covered dishes that you think of and all that's fine and good, no doubt. And of course that's a part of it, but this word fellowship, and many of you know this, this the, the Greek word behind this word is a word that sort of bleeds over into our English vocabulary. It's the word that is koinonia that means much more than just food and eating together. It's a unity, it's a partnership. And just think about this. All these disparate nations, all of these Jewish people coming from all of these Greco-Roman nations speaking different languages, coming together, being united, coming together when the early church has this power vacuum where their leader, Jesus, has ascended to the right hand throne of the Father. And so we think to ourselves, this is not natural that there's a unity. And that there is a coming together in supernatural ways. And why is that the case? Because the Spirit of God is leading the people of God, devoted to the Word of God and to the worship of God. And it it leads them to the needy around them and the needy among them. Look with me again in this passage here. Look at the true sacrificial care that was provided for this church. Verse 44, and all who believe were together had all things in common. They were selling their possessions, verse 45, and belongings and contributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not shallow. This is not a superficial fellowship here. They're leveraging their material possessions as they sell them, as they have the ability. And they're taking the proceeds of that. And they're using that to display radical generosity to those in their midst who have needs right there in that first century Jerusalem context. Now, it is really easy to read this passage here, especially in the 20th century and the 21st century, and read back into it economic theories. And so there have been many people that looked at these passages and said, Is this sort of like a proto socialistic or proto communism here? Well, again, just read the passage. They're not abandoning the idea of owning private property. You see this in verse 46 here. They're breaking bread in their homes. Not everyone is selling all of their possessions. You're going to continue to see this in the church that they're meeting in their own homes here. They're using their possessions, and what they're doing is they have the ability, they're selling some of them. There's no charge of communism that you can find in here, but what you can find is a powerful reminder of radical generosity, that the Christian community is coming together and they're seeing the needs and they're leveraging their possessions to be able to meet those needs here. And Peter doesn't stand up and guilt trip them into this. There's no Peter standing up saying, how can all of you sleep at night knowing that there's so many needs around you? Peter doesn't do this. These are women and men who are marked by their Savior. They're giving freely, they're giving voluntarily, they're giving sacrificially, and they're giving generously. You know why they do that? Because their Savior, our Savior, the Word who has become flesh, Jesus has given Himself freely. He has given Himself voluntarily. He's given Himself sacrificially, and He has given Himself generously. And these are men and women who are marked by their Maker. And as they're marked by their Maker, they're overflowing as recipients of His grace And so, of course, they're going to be generous because they're shaped into the image of a Savior who teaches a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Of course, they're going to be marked by their Savior, a Savior who would teach us it is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. And so, we stand here as recipients of the cameo of this early church. We stand 2000 years down the road approximately as those who were marked by this radical generosity. And as we as a church seek to be found faithful as God's people, we also can look back in our own 99 year history and see women and men who sat in these very pews, some of them whose names elude us and hundreds of us in the sanctuary don't know, but who were marked by a radical generosity that led them to live lives not with closed-handed fists, let's keep the resources to ourselves, let's form this holy huddle, but open-handed to leverage the resources that God entrusted in this church to be able to meet the needs across this very community and across this world. We stand as inheritors, recipients of the faithfulness of, of those who have come before us who decades ago saw that their are medicinal needs, educational needs, their needs in this very community that need to be met in a very special way. And the formation of Empower Ministries that is located in Avondale now is the birth of, of generosity of members of Dawson Memorial Baptist Church decades before. Years before There are members of this very church who saw their their educational needs in our own community and the formation of the learning center is birthed out of that kind of radical generosity. Uh, Decades before, there were people who who sat in these very pews or uh, about a decade before, very people that sat in these pews who said their needs that are physical needs in our community that we need to meet and kids connection was birthed out of that. Dr. Fenton didn't stand before you and guilt trip you into that. It is the mark of the maker and a radical generosity that overflows out of the hearts of believers who are stewarding their resources. And we are recipients of that in the year of our Lord 2024. And we are called to be faithful to continue that legacy, a legacy that was marked in the early church 2,000 years before, we will have different ways that we do that in our individual lives, but we come together to be able to meet physical needs in our community and beyond to be able to meet a far greater need, and that is the spiritual need that we have a platform to meet through the radical generosity that shaped them, and I pray shapes me, and I pray shapes you. Yes, this is a message for the church, but this is a message for each of us individually. And so as we sit under and submit to the word of God, I can't help but to ask a very obvious question, what and who are you devoted to? Because what and who we as a church are devoted to is the compilation of how each of us individually in this sanctuary answer that question. Are we women and men who are devoted to the word of God are we women and men who are devoted to the worship of God and are we going to be a people who continue to be devoted to the care of one another? How we answer that makes all the difference for today. But my friends, it makes an eternal difference for many people who will never darken the doors of this church. Who and what are we devoted to? Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit dawsonchurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.